Jeff. This week and next week, we're going to wrap up John 21. John 21 is the last chapter in the Gospel of John, uh, and I'm going to take two weeks to go through it. It's one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. Today, we're going to look at verses 1 through 14, and next week, we're going to look at verses 15 through 25 and just split it up right in, uh, right in half. And then we're going to get into the book of Acts and go chapter by chapter through that book. And that study is going to take us past the first of the year because there's a lot there, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, it, it, uh, I just want to give you a little bit of background to the Gospel of John as we wrap it up. Most of you know that there's four Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are what's called the synoptic Gospels. It means that they share most things in common. Mark, the second of them, was probably written first, uh, and it starts with the public ministry of Jesus when he's about 30 years old. And so there's no telling of his early life, his birth, as there is in Matthew and in Luke. And what likely happened is both Matthew and Luke used uh, Mark as kind of their reference in writing their Gospels. And so they draw a lot from Mark, and that's why Matthew, Mark, and Luke have many things in similar. A lot of the stories are, are told just from a little different perspective, but that's why they're called the synoptic Gospels. John is very, very different. John is the outlier of the four. Uh, and most of what's in John, actually 90% of what's in John is not found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's very, very different. Um, actually, many of the miracles in the book of John are not found anywhere but the book of John. There are seven statements of Jesus where he says, I am the. Those are called the I am statements of Jesus. It's only in John. Jesus says seven different times, I am. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the, uh, the good shepherd, I am the gate, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the vine. That's only found in the Gospel of John. The entire chapter, John 17, is Jesus' prayer, where he prays for himself, he prays for his immediate disciples, and then he prays for everyone who will believe on their testimony, all of us. This greatest discourse that we have of Jesus in the Scripture is only in the book of John. It's so unique to the other three Gospels. In the book of John, the word Christ is mentioned 170 plus times. And the word believe is, is mentioned over 100 times. And, and, and John actually tells us in John 20 that the reason he wrote the gospel was so that you might believe. Uh, and so it's a very, very, very unique perspective of Jesus, his humanity, his divinity, uh, who he, what he taught and what he did. And it's been a great study for us to go through this year. But it feels like if you read the book of John, it should have ended at chapter 20. It feels like chapter 20 should be the end of the gospel because here's how, here's how John 20 ends. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Sounds like the end, right? Like, this is it. Did a lot of stuff. Some of it's here. This is just you can believe. But not everything's written down because he just did so much. So peace out. We'll check you later. I mean, that's, it seems like it's in. But then John gives us 25 more verses. Why? Well, have you ever known a preacher to stop preaching when he's still out of mic? You know, he, just, he just keeps going. Uh, and, and let me suggest to you why he gives us 25 more verses. Chapter 21, I want to suggest this for, for two reasons. One is because Jesus is a great Savior. He's a great Savior. Uh, because the fact is that a dead Savior isn't a great Savior. And chapter 21 is all about another proof of his life after the, uh, the, the, the crucifixion, burial, and the resurrection. It's just more proof that he, had a, uh, he, he was raised in a physical body. Matter of fact, in the book of Matthew, it's recorded that Jesus told his disciples, when I rise from the dead, meet me in Galilee. 
And so chapter 21 is about them being obedient and his faithfulness to, to do what he said, that he was going to come meet them again. So that, that one of the reasons it's, it, chapter 21 is written because Jesus is a great Savior. But the other reason John 21 is written is because John is a great friend. Jesus is a great f- Savior, and John is a great friend. John, the disciple John, loved Peter, the disciple Peter. They loved each other, uh, and they were two of Jesus' closest uh, but at the end of chapter 20, Peter does not end well. He denies Jesus. He's not around at the cross. It goes rough for Peter at the end. Uh, and, 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 and there was this little rivalry between Peter and John. And you get glimpses of it. Like last week in John 20, at the resurrection, the Bible says that, that Peter and John were, were, were going towards the tomb because they heard the report. And, and it says Peter got a head start. And start to run first. But John makes sure that the biblical record for all eternity reads that he was faster than Peter and outran him. Right? And, and so there's a little rivalry there. Um, but John, because he's such a good friend, wants everyone to know that Peter had been restored. That there had been a great fall. But he received great grace. And that's always the way it works with God. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And so John wants to make sure that we know, not just of Peter's repentance, but of God's grace and restoration. See, if chapter 21 wouldn't have been written, you go to Acts, the very next book, which is the story of the first church, and all of a sudden, the first 12 chapters is all about Peter leading the church. And you'd be like, okay, wait, 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 this guy just screwed up bad. And now he's leading a church, typical church, right? And so John wants us to know that, yeah, Peter fumbled bad, and there was a great fall. But because the heart of God is the heart of God, in repentance there's great grace and restoration. And, and so Peter, or John needs to tell us the story of Peter's restoration, and he does in chapter 21. See, good friends say good things about you to your face. Great friends say great things about you behind your back. And that's what John's doing to Peter. Talking behind Peter's back to all of us about what a great disciple Peter was because of his repentance and what a great God God is because of his grace. Do you understand? So he gives us chapter 21. And so let's jump into chapter 21. If you have a Bible or it's on your smart device or something, follow along. It'll be on the screen. It's also on our app. If you haven't downloaded our app, please do that. John 21, verses 1 and 2. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two other disciples were together. Seven disciples. John talks about Peter, but he gives him, what's the name he uses for Peter? He adds something to it. What is it? Simon Peter. This is significant. I don't want you to miss this. He calls him Simon Peter. Now, Simon was his birth name. Mom and dad gave him the name Simon. When he started following Jesus and made this great profession of faith, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, you know, Jesus changed his name from Simon to Peter. And he says, you will now be called Peter or Cephas, and it's the word for rock. And Jesus says, because on this rock I will build my church. God was calling Simon to a great destiny that had far more to do with his history or his humanity. And so he changed his name from Simon to Peter. And all through the Gospels, he is then known as Peter until he messes up. And once he messes up, they draw on his history as a reminder of who he was and that you're never too far from who you were. And so they call him Simon Peter because he messed up. Do you understand? Simon Peter. Though he had been changed, there was still a call. And so John uses this former name, Simon, to remind him and us of what he was to remind both of us that we're not too far from what we were, but that God has called us to something greater, that our destiny is greater than our history, though we may have a pretty bad history. 
So he refers to him as Simon Peter. You know, I am, uh, I'm so thankful that God is a God who changes our identity from our history to our destiny. That's what he does. Some of us have lived and continue to live with the identity of our history. And though we've left that history, we still are marred and call ourselves to what we were. And God is the God who changes your identity from your history to your destiny. And though you may have a Simon history, you've got a Cephas, a Peter, destiny. Don't ever forget that. Don't let the Simon have too much territory in your life. There's a greater destiny. But, but, but so John wants to, wants to make sure that we understand that though Simon had dropped the ball, there's restoration in store for Peter. This is John 21. It's interesting that, that, that John says there's two other disciples and they're not named. I don't think it's because John didn't know them. I don't think it's that John forgot them. He's pretty detailed. I, I, if I were to, to look at this and think, why are they not named? I, I would draw this kind of conclusion. They're not named so that you and I could put our names there. So that we can become part of his story. See, most, Chris, most church people, most Christians want God to become part of my story. That's not how it works. We don't ask God to become a part of our story. We ask to be part of his story. And so these two disciples are on name so that we can become part of his story. So that I put myself in the middle of scripture and I become the one as Jesus restored his fallen, so he restores me. As God provides for his people, so he provides for me. So I take myself and put myself right in the middle of this. Do you understand? You understand? So that's the setting. Let's look at the details. This is Simon Peter. I'm going out to fish. I ain't got nothing else to do. I'm going to go fish. Simon Peter told them. And they said, yeah, we'll go with you. And so they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. So they typically fished at night. And the reason is because at night the waters would cool down and the fish would rise to the surface. And they're fishing with nets. And so you can't get a net down at 300 feet, you know, off the side of a boat. And so they're fishing at night. Water's cooler. Fish rise. As the sun comes up and the water temperature gets hotter, they go deeper and deeper and deeper. deeper. If you've ever been fishing in Tahoe, you understand this. We were fishing a few years back with my sons and, and some of their friends. And we started out at O Dark 30. Uh, and we're catching all kinds of fish. And by the time we got done at about 11 o'clock, as the sun was high overhead and the waters were warm, the last fish we caught was down at 400 feet. And that's just, that's just the nature of it. So they fish at night because fish are up at the top. So they fish all night. They catch nothing. And so Peter says, I'm going out to fish, right? Now, here's what we got to understand. But had Jesus told him to go fishing after the resurrection? He said, meet me in Galilee. See, previously, Jesus told Peter and the boys, he said, you used to be fishermen of fish, now I'm going to be fishermen of men, right? So this was his former occupation. And he's waiting there in Galilee, and Jesus doesn't show up. He's waiting, 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 day after day after day, just doesn't show up. And he just figures, well, heck, if God ain't going to show up, I'm going to go back to my old life, right? I don't know what else to do. I'm going to go back to do what I used to do. Like, like he was not under the destruction of the direction of God to go fish again. It's just something he decided to do. I, I wonder how many of us, when we're waiting on God, like, like he was being obedient. Jesus said, when I rise, go to Galilee and wait for me. So he was doing everything God said to do, right? He wasn't being disobedient. He was where God said to be. He was doing what God said to do. I'm there and I'm waiting. Have any of you been obedient like you? I'm trying to do it right. And I'm waiting on God to show up, and he just didn't know anywhere around. Have you ever waited on God to the point of discouragement? To the point of, like, questioning? To the point of, like, I don't, I mean, what else do you want from me? Any of you? And so he figures, fine, I'll go back to what I used to do. And that's what we do sometimes. God hadn't intervened. God hadn't answered. I'll go back to my old life. At least it's familiar. 
I mean, don't you know when you're waiting on God, that's going to be some real uncomfortable, unfamiliar territory? You go back to your old life, at least you know how that one works. But I don't want to throw Peter under the bus too much because I don't think he's being sinful. I mean, Jesus didn't tell him to fish, but he didn't say don't fish either. He just said wait. And so what do you do? When you're bored of waiting, you do something. I mean, at least Peter was doing something. And I don't think he was being sinful. I don't think he was being neglectful. I, I just think he was doing something. But here's the thing, and this is what we've got to understand. It wasn't wrong, it just wasn't blessed. And I wonder how much of what we do, how much of what we fill our schedules with, how much activity we involve ourselves in, it's not wrong, it's not sinful, but it's not done at the direction of God. And because it's not done at the direction of God or attached to the kingdom of God, it's just activity, it's just not blessed activity. Do you understand? I feel like I'm preaching better than you're listening. I, I, think, I, think, I think there's a lot of things that we involve ourselves, a lot of activity, and it's not sinful or bad activity. It's just stuff. And it's not done at the direction of God or attached to the kingdom of God. It's just stuff. And because it's just stuff, it's not bad stuff. It's just stuff. It's just not blessed. Like it wasn't wrong for them to go fishing, but it wasn't attached to the kingdom or at the direction of God. And so it was just unsuccessful. Does that make sense? It's so interesting to me. Peter says, I'm going up to fish. And what was their response? We'll go with you. You know, statistically, what we know in, in the leadership circles is there's only about 20% of the population that are leaders. Now, everybody wants to be a leader until you pass, try to pass on the mantle of leadership. And it's like, ah, I don't know if I want to take the lead in that. So most people want to be led and most people will follow. Statistically, there's only about 20% who really are leaders. Here's what I know. That if you are a leader, lead well because people are following. You know how to know you're a leader? You know how to know? Well, look behind you. If you've got anybody behind you, you're a leader. If you ain't got nobody behind you, you're not a leader. You're just taking a walk. So just... So if you're a leader, lead well because people will follow. And if you're not a leader, make sure you're following the right one. Because they might lead you into something that isn't bad, it's just not blessed. And if you're a leader, make sure you're leading people in the direction of Jesus attached to the kingdom. Someone said this a long time ago, I think it was John Maxwell, he said, leadership is simple, leadership is influence. So whoever has an influence in any particular given situation, they by default become the leader. So if you have influence in any particular arena or situation, you are by default the leader, lead well. Got it? Thank you. Who said that? I like that, Caleb. Thank you. You know, one of the things I, I see about Peter is at least he was doing something. I mean, I've said before that God can't even steer a parked car. I mean, if there's no movement, there's nothing to direct. So, so though it wasn't really at the direction of God, at least he was doing something. I, you know, I say, I say it like this all the time. Say yes to God on the front end and let God direct the, mo the, 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 the movement. Like so many people just sit back and they say, well, God, if you'll just do something, God says, well, I'm waiting for you to take the first step. Like I'll direct your steps, but I'm not going to, you don't give me anything to direct because you're not doing anything. At least do something. Even if it's of your own opinion, as long as you're open to my direction, I will direct your movement. But if you don't move, I can't direct. So do something. At least make a decision and move. I'll direct your movement, but I can't reject or, or I can't direct your stillness. And so he moves. God's, think about it like this. Like God's activity is like a mountain stream. It's just constantly moving. 
And our job is to be a twig that's thrown into the stream. You take the twig and throw it into the stream, and that twig will go wherever that stream directs it. Too many of us twiggies sit on the outside saying, God, do something. He says, well, I'm waiting for you to jump in the stream. You jump in the stream, and then he'll direct it. And what he directs, he blesses. That's just how he works. He's not going to direct something that isn't in the stream of his activity. But if it's in the stream of activity, he definitely will bless it. See the disciples fishing. I mean, so much of what we do is, 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 is activity, but it's not attached to the kingdom. And if it's not attached to like God can't bless what's not attached to his kingdom. So take the activity, attach it to the kingdom somehow. Some of you have noticed that over the past year, I've lost a lot of weight. It's all been on purpose. But it's, it's come by a lot of discipline of eating and, 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 and exercising and lifting and all this stuff. And though you may have noticed my drop in weight and, and hopefully looking a little more healthy, you don't know why I've done it. And so let me tell you why I've done it. I've done it because I understand God's call on my life to be three things. It's real simple. God's call on my life is to preach, teach, and coach. Coach in the church, coach outside the church, coach up men, preach, teach, and coach. I want to be able to preach, teach, and coach with incredible energy uh, and incredible piss and vinegar (laughs) until I'm 80 years old. And I can't do that if I'm not healthy. Do you understand? And so I've taken this, something that's important, and I've attached it to God's activity. And I've thrown it in the stream. And I'm going to do what I can do to make sure that I am able to do what God's called me until I'm 80 years old. And I'm going to trust God to direct the movement of it. But I've got to be responsible to do the work so that God can direct the movement. And what the work that I'm doing is to fulfill my call to preach, teach, and coach until I'm 80 years old. Now listen, some people work for retirement which is fine if that's what you want to do. Let me put this caveat by that. It's fine to retire from a task, but you never retire from a call. We need to constantly retire from tasks, but never from God's call. And God's call on my life is to teach, preach, and coach. And I want to do that till I'm 80 years old. I want to do it, though. I want to do it where I still got some cognitive ability and not be like Joe Biden. I want to be able to really <laughs> understand and engage well. You, you follow me? I'll retire from tasks all day long, but I'll never retire from the call of God in my life, and I want to do it well till I'm 80. I don't know if it'll be here that long, but it'll be somewhere. I need to stick to the Bible and not talk about <laughs> Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you, you know, caught anything? Well, no, they answered. They didn't realize it was Jesus. This was the closest man in their lives. This was their Savior. This was spent three years with them. Why didn't they recognize it was him? Well, one of the reasons, I think, is because of what we read of in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. And 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the resurrected body. The Bible is very clear that, that the body is sown perishable. It's raised imperishable. It's sown in immortality. It's, it's sown in mortality, but it's raised in immortality. And that, that which is planted in the ground looks different from that which is raised from the ground. And Jesus' physical body was buried, but it was raised. And it, it, he lived out what we read of in 1 Corinthians 15, this transformation of the body. Think about it like this, like a seed that's planted. A seed that's planted looks very different than the flower that's raised. They share the same DNA of the plant, but it looks very different. 
And so what we know from Scripture is that if when I die in Christ, there will be a bodily resurrection, just not of my spirit, with the, but the bodily resurrection. And the body that I get for eternity is going to look a little different than this one. And yours is too. And you're all going to be bald. and It's going to be beautiful. And so what they're seeing is this resurrected body of Jesus. And it's just different. Like, they're similar, but it's different. It's glorious. And they just don't, but I think something else is going on here as well with this, with this body. Jesus is in front of them, but they don't see him. Why? Because think about what the disciples are going through. They've been through the most grievous and horrendous experience of watching, watching this crucifixion. If you were here for that message, you understand how brutal that was. They see him buried. They're in complete despair for three days. And then they experience the, the, the adulation of the resurrection. And it's like, this is amazing. It's all good now. And now they're sitting at this lake waiting for him to show up. And he doesn't show up. And their emotions are just like this. Like, are you alive? Aren't you? Where are you? You said you'd be here. You're not here. And they're just all over the place. And here's what I know. When you and I go through those times of discouragement, of difficulty, of grief, of questioning, of doubt. It's real hard to see God, isn't it? It's real hard to see him. Though he's close, it's real hard to see him because of what we're going through. And this is what was happening with them. Though he was near, they didn't recognize him. Here's what we've got to understand. Watch this. When you don't recognize his presence, you must listen for his voice. We don't recognize his presence. You must listen for his voice. And this is what happens to so many of us. We don't recognize his presence. There's all kinds of other stuff going on in our lives. And some of it's really difficult stuff. And, and because of the difficulty we're going through, we don't see him. And when you don't see him, that's okay. You've got to listen for his voice, though. And here's say, you want to know how to hear his voice? It's in his word. That's why the Bible says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that's why we made such an emphasis on reading the Bible. Read through the book of John as you go through it. We're getting ready to go into the book of Acts. Read through the book of Acts. Because there'll be those times, and you know it, when you just don't see them anymore. And you're doing what you're supposed to do. And you're in the place where you're supposed to be. And you're doing everything he said to do. You don't know what else to do. But he's not around. At least with my eyes. What do I do? Go back to my old way? No. You start listening for his voice. And you start saying, okay, I'm going to listen by reading. I don't see you, but I'm going to listen by reading. And Jesus speaks. What's the question he asks him? You got any fish? You know how mean it is to ask a fisherman with no fish if they caught anything? Like, it's apparent. Don't ask me. Right? He asked them, y'all got any fish? He already knew the answer. Why did he ask the question? The same reason why God asks questions of humans in the Bible. All through the Bible. In the, in the, in the, in the first book of Genesis, God asked the question, Adam, where are you? God knew where he was. Adam, did you eat the fruit I said not to eat of? He knew he did. All through the Bible, Elijah's running scared. A great prophet of God running scared because Jezebel is upset at him. He goes to, God says to Elijah, Elijah, why are you hiding? He knows why. He knows they had caught fish. Hey, God, fellas, y'all catch anything? Why does God ask us questions? It's not for information. Here's why. God asks us questions because he wants us to admit our failure. Here's how to understand it. God asks questions because God wants us to admit our failures. Because God's design is that through admitting our failure, we receive grace. That's why. He says, I just want you to admit how and where and when you drop the ball. I want you to admit to me, God says, where you blew it. 
Because it's in your admittance of your blowing it that you open yourself to my grace. And my grace is so far better than your sin. The Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds more. The best thing a Christ follower can do is to admit their failure because that opens us up to the grace of God. And this is why religious people miss grace. Because religious people want to live with this facade that I am not wrong and they want to live with the exposing of other people's wrong. And all the while they miss the grace of God. And so when we talk about this, we talk about the need for repentance. It's not for the issue of shame and destruction. It's for the liberation through the grace of God in your life. The best thing you can do, the best thing I can do is agree with God about what sin is and how I have dropped the ball, how you have dropped the ball, and repent so that we're open to the grace of God. Do you understand? And that's why Jesus says, did y'all catch anything? Because he needed them to admit that their work and their effort was worthless. So he could step in and do something. I think the Bible's fun. Jesus said, throw your nets on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to hold the net because of the large number of fish. The, the boat they were fishing, we know this from archaeological discoveries, the boat was 27 feet long and seven and a half feet wide. Um, you know the difference between failure and success? Seven and a half feet. Let that sink in, because let me interpret what I just said to you. The difference between success and failure is responding to God's directions. And it's real close. Seven and a half feet. God said, I want you to do what you do my way. Now, these were competent and diligent fishermen. But what they needed to add to their competence and their diligence was obedience. And in that was success. In that was blessing. Here's what I know. You and I, we fill our schedules with a lot of activity. I'm going fishing. And the activity we fill our lives with and our schedule with, we might be very competent and diligent in it. But until we hear from God and become obedient, the competence and diligence will never lead to success. It'll just be activity. And so the goal of the disciple is to be obedient and to add competence and diligence to that. Do you understand? What's interesting to me is Jesus said, do this, and they did it. Implied in Scripture is immediate first-time obedience. God never says, I'm going to give you to the count of three. He doesn't do that. The expectation of immediate and first-time obedience God said it, I do it. I'm not going to pray about it. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to post about it. I'm not going to ask my friends about it. I'm not going to ask my pastor about it. God said it, I do it. I'm obedient. I don't know, just as a side note, where parents ever got the idea that it was a good idea to ask their kids, I'm going to count to three. You're just giving them three chances to disobey. Well, I don't see that in Scripture at all. I mean, we learn to follow God by following our parents. And God says, do this, and he expects first-time obedience. You better expect that out of your kids. You better train them. It's just interesting to me that the difference between success and failure was seven and a half feet. They were competent and diligent. They just weren't obedient. Add obedience to your competence and diligence. It starts to be successful for the kingdom. Look at seven and eight. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as... As Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. This is, I want you to know something. When the Bible says in verse 7, then the disciple whom Jesus loved, we know that was, that was John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. We know that was John. He always refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is interesting, and I don't want you to miss this. John's focus 
in his relationship with God was on God's love for him, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He doesn't talk about himself in terms of his love for Jesus. He always talks about himself in terms of Jesus' love for him. Contrast that with Peter. Peter never talked about his relationship with Jesus in terms of Jesus' love for him. Peter talked about his relationship with Jesus based on his love for Jesus. Even if I'll betray you, I won't. I'll go with you to the grave. Which one was at the cross as faithful and which one betrayed him? When our focus is on his love for me, I stay. When my focus is on my love for him, I leave. Because our love for God is not great enough to keep us in his presence in the darkest nights of the soul. We will always walk away because we're frail and sinful people. But if my focus is on God's love for me and I understand how much he loves me and how much he gave for me and his son dying for me, that kind of love, you don't walk away from that kind of love. And I just want to ask, where has your focus been in your relationship with God? Your love for him and how good you can be? Or understanding this incredible love that he has for you? The difference is this. One of those is going to stay with Jesus even at the cross. The other is going to walk away because he's scared of a 12-year-old girl. Don't miss these little things in the Bible. It's profound. And when the disciple Jesus loved, heard, uh, um, said, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him because he took it off and jumped in the water. So Peter's in the boat fishing, and he realizes Jesus, and what's the first thing he does? No, he doesn't jump in the water. He does something before that. He puts his coat on. This is a wool, heavy garment. Peter is a successful fisherman. He understands the physics of a heavy coat on a body in water. It's not a good swimming situation. And yet he puts his coat on and jumps in the water. Doesn't that seem odd? Do you know why he did it? No, you don't know. I don't know. It's not, we're not told why. He just says he did it. I got some ideas. One of the ideas I have is this. They're basically almost naked in the boat. I mean, they got the chonies on, but they're working men and they're, you know, you're in a boat, water and so. And so it's, it's not very polite to go talk to a man of importance in your chonies. It's just not something that you're supposed to do. And so it's like, come on, cover that up. It's just, come on, nobody needs to see that. That, that could have been part of, you know. But it could have been this too. And Peter could have been thinking, oh, there he is. John ain't going to beat me twice in a row. He about to beat me in a run, but he ain't going to beat me in a swim. And so, you know, he just jumps in like, ah. Not thinking. But it could be. There was another time when Peter was in the boat and Jesus was outside of it. And Jesus said, Peter, come to me. And what did Peter do? Hopped out and walked on water. And Peter could have been thinking, I'm going to put my coat on and I'm going to walk again and jumped out the water. And like, what happened? See, the first time Peter walked on water, it was at the direction of Jesus. Jesus didn't tell Peter, to come to him on the water this time. Though it was activity, it wasn't sinful activity, but it was activity, probably stupid activity, because it wasn't at the direction of God and attached to the kingdom of God, it just didn't work. You understand? So we're back to this whole thing about attaching the activity we do to God's direction and obedience, because otherwise it's just ineffective. Then he jumps in, comes to the shore. Look at verse 9 and 10. When they had landed, they saw a fire burning, a fire of burning coals there with a fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you just caught. Jesus already had fish. He even added bread. Like he had everything set. He didn't need their fish. But he invited them to be a part. Here's what we've got to understand. The lesson is this. God doesn't need your help, but he loves your involvement. 
God does not need our help, but he invites our involvement. He had everything needed, and God does. He's got everything. He doesn't need our our portion of anything, but he invites it because he wants us to be involved with him in what he's doing. And this is why God asks for the first and best portion of your time and your energy and your finances, not because he needs it, He's got everything already prepared, but because he wants you to be involved with him. Does that make sense? Do you understand? He's constantly calling us. Give me a little what you got. I mean, think about it with the disciples. He says, give me some of the fish, which, by the way, I gave you in the first place. All he's doing is asking for a little bit back of what he's given his people. Nothing has changed. He didn't need any of it, but he invited their involvement. Same he does for you. Same he does for me. Here's what I know. What cost God so greatly cannot cost us so little. Do you understand? What cost God so greatly, his son, cannot cost us so little. I'm going to wrap up here pretty soon. i got a couple more verses, right? Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It, it was a bunch of full of big fish, 153 of them, as a matter of fact. But even with so many, uh, the net wasn't torn. Jesus said to them, let's have some breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. The Bible says this time the nets weren't torn. 153 fish to fill up that net. I mean, these were huge fish, but the nets weren't torn. Here's what's significant about that, I think. The last time Jesus provided a miraculous catch for his disciples, it says there were so many fish, the, the nets start to tear. That was before the resurrection. This time, the nets are just as full. But the nets don't tear. tear. Here's what I think is going on. The resurrection repairs broken things. That's what's happening. Before the resurrection, stuff falls apart. After the resurrection, the resurrection repairs broken things. God holds all things together because of the resurrection. It's the repair of humanity. It's the repair of salvation. It's the repair of his kingdom. God, the resurrection repairs. So the nets weren't torn. You know why there are 153 fish? I don't know. It doesn't tell us why. It just says there are 153. There's a lot of stuff out there, a lot of superstitions about, well, there are 153 nations, 153 languages. It's a sign that the king's going to incorporate the whole world. There are 153 commands added to the, the yoke of the fairies. It's all this stuff. It's ridiculous. Who knows? The one thing I do know is that every fisherman knows exactly how many fish he caught that day. <laughs> That's uh, just 153. I don't know. There are a lot. Let me wrap up with this. Watch this. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the, with the fish. This was the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This breakfast they had, can you imagine how good this breakfast must have been? I mean, Jesus just beat death, beat the devil, raised from the You think he's going to have a fish sandwich from, you know, Long John Silver's? Like, this must have been an awesome, I would have loved to have part of this meal. This would be the best man. I guarantee you, they're going to be old men. Well, no, they died pretty young because of martyrdom, except John. John was around a long time. I bet he's always thinking about, you remember that one lunch I had? Oh, that was good. So Jesus had this big old spread. Can you imagine what an incredible day this was for these disciples? Like, finally. The resurrection was amazing, but then we didn't see him, but now he's here. And, 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 and we got to, like, he's with, and this provision of this fish and, and his taking care of us. And, like, this is, can you imagine what a great day this was for them? Like, it's, it's, like in their minds, like, yes, finally. It, it's all before us. If the Bible were written in today's culture by the American church, Right at this point of scripture, I'm convinced it would say something like this. It was a great day with Jesus. He provided us with a huge 
catch and made us prosperous and successful. I think that's how the American church would write the story. But that's not the biblical record. For the disciples, the highlight of the day was not the success of their endeavor. We've got to understand this. The highlight of the day was not the success of their endeavor. The highlight of the day was their fellowship with Jesus. And here for us is the crux of the whole thing. Is your fellowship with Jesus enough to be the highlight of your day regardless of the success of your endeavors? Is your fellowship with Jesus enough to be the highlight of your day regardless of the success of your endeavors? See, so many people and I understand it. We're in those moments of need. We're in those moments of scarcity. We're in those moments of pain. We're in those moments of grief. We're waiting and waiting and waiting for God to show up, for God to intervene, for Jesus to do something, for Jesus to speak, for the result from the doctor, for the result from the job, for the, result, for the child to come. We're waiting for all these things. And we're gauging the blessedness of our day and our life based on the success of those endeavors. When Jesus says all along, I am sufficient for your needs. And he asks us the question, am I enough? Regardless of all these other things, regardless of your success, regardless of your achievement, regardless of my, regardless of my, am I enough? If I never gave you the catch of fish, am I enough? If I never provided this breakfast, am I enough? Is your fellowship with me enough? to be the highlight of your day regardless of the success of your endeavor. It has to become that. It has to be that. With such a great sacrifice of the Father, may it not cost us so little. And so I leave you with the question that I'm left with. Is my fellowship with Jesus enough to be the highlight of my day and my life, regardless of the success of my endeavor. Friends, it's got to be. I want you to pray with me. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you didn't stay dead, and I thank you that you didn't leave the disciples alone. I thank you that you promised never to leave us or forsake us. Father, my prayer on my behalf, my prayer on our behalf is real simple. May our fellowship with you be enough to be the highlight of our day regardless of our endeavors. May you be enough. God, some of us need your intervention. Some of us need your hand. Some of us need your work. Some of us need you to step in. Some of us need you not to be silent anymore. Some of us need you to be present. Some of us need you to open our eyes. Some of us need an answer. Some of us need a result. Some of us need a lot of things. But forgive us for making the highlight of our day in our life the success of those endeavors more than simply the pleasure and privilege of being in your presence. Guys, real quick, just in this moment between you and God, I invite you. God knows the intent of your heart. I don't want to force words at all. I'm just inviting you to open up your heart with the attitude of this. Jesus, you are enough for me. Regardless of the success of what I want from you. I choose you. Jesus, you are enough for me. Regardless of the catch of fish, I choose you. Jesus, thank you that you first chose me. You are enough. Regardless of the things that be or may come, I choose you. Tell him, say, and I choose you to be the highlight of my day and my life. You're enough.
Father, I pray that you would hear the hearts that are coming to you. You're such a good God. If you've never trusted your life to Jesus, if you've never admitted your failure so you can experience the grace of God, in this moment, I invite you. Say, Jesus, I confess my sin to you. I admit I've struggled, I've dropped the ball, I've broken your word and your command. Forgive me of my sin. I accept you to be my leader and my savior. And I choose today that you are enough. That Jesus, you are my highlight. And I give you permission in my life to give a great catch or a little. Either way, you're enough. Father, I thank you that you heard those prayers. May you be enough. In your name I pray, amen. And if any of you have made some decision to follow Jesus, I would love to know. You've got to tell somebody because that's what we do. I wrote a little book about foundations. It's just some basic principles of the Christian faith. I'd love for you to pick that up. And as you find typos, let me know because you are my editors. But it'll help you in your next steps. But here's my other uh, offer for you. Sometimes you can make those decisions in your heart and it clicks and it sticks and you're good. Sometimes you make those decisions in your heart and you just need to talk to someone or have someone pray with you about it. That's the body of Christ. And, and so if any of you are, are in, that, in that stream or making those decisions, whether you just want to stay here or I know my friends, the Addingtons are here and the, the McElroys and others are forced back. The others is people that would love to pray with you. If you just want to stay put and as people leave you, stay and... Talk to some of them and pray with them. They'd love the honor of doing that with you and, and for you. I would too. So if it's clicked and it stayed, fantastic. But if you want to talk and pray with somebody, man, we're here. The greatest joy and privilege of our life. I love you. I'm excited for next week as we wrap this thing up. It's going to be exciting. But let's sing a little bit, Jeff, can we?